Welcome to The Business Extra. I'm Mustafa Rawi, the National's Assistant Editor-in-Chief. Today, we're going to be talking about human behavior and economic policy. Before we do that, if you like the show, please do subscribe. If you're on YouTube, ring that bell. I'm very happy to say that I'm joined in the studio today by NYU AD Professor of Economics, Nikos Nikiforakis. Professor Nikiforakis, thank you for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here, Mustafa. So we're talking about human behavior and economic policymaking, and that's because uh, at NYUAD you lead the uh, Center for Behavioral Institutional Design. And you've got an event coming up uh, later this month in Abu Dhabi, which we'll get into. But really, I want to know what is this area of research and study that seems to be becoming more influential at the moment when it comes to policymaking? So... We, you could call the area behavioral social science, behavioral economics is a close synonym. What we're trying to do is we're basically using state-of-the-art methods in mathematical modeling, statistical analysis, and experimental techniques to get closer to understanding the primitives of human behavior. Why do we do the things we do? Why are some of us more resourceful? Why are some of us more risk tolerant. And uh, obviously, once we understand the primitives of this economic behavior, uh, this has direct implications for policy design. Is, is it the first time that people are linking the study of human behavior in that way with, with policy making, or is this something that's been going on for a while? So the, this kind of link, you could say, started at the aftermath of what is now called the Great Recession, which started about 14 years ago. And all of a sudden, there was this realization that um, this idea we have in social science that, you know, this ultra-rational agent, uh, it, it was called into question in a very spectacular fashion. So since then, in the decade that followed, around the world, you had, uh, you could call it the nudge revolution, if you want, a lot of uh, governments started investing in units inside them to help improve policies in the sense that making things easier for people to make the right decisions for them. Uh, what is kind of different with us now is that unlike, uh, it's a different structure. We are a research center embedded in a university. So we are not part of a government unit or a consulting firm, which was the, the typical um, unit that was serving these needs. So, Professor Nikki Farakis, if I ask you, um, when you talk about nudging, which is essentially um, helping policy to be successful by encouraging people to do certain things, whether it was to do with public health or education, whatever it is, um, had become more popular after the financial crisis. What's kind of the difference between what the study is now and I guess what might be a blurred line and what people might call manipulation, whether it might be getting a population to do something, whether politically or economically, marketing, essentially, sales, mm -hmm. like how, how, does it, how is it different? It's a, it's a very good question. It's a very broad question. Um, nudges are kind of defined as policies that don't really coerce people into certain decisions, by which we mean that we do not restrict your option to buy something or we don't 
dramatically change prices. And also a second key ingredient of nudges is that they are there to make people better off as judged by themselves. So this is in contrast to other things. So for example, um, let's say a traditional, what we call syntaxes. If you, people who smoke and, you know, it's widely believed this is not good. So what do we do? We tax cigarette consumption. The price goes up. That's not a nudge. Uh, it's a, uh, now, I have this taxonomy with one of my colleagues. We could either call this a push or a shove. And that depends on whether the person is better off or not. So a person, you can say, is better off if that person needed help to give up smoking. But in some cases, people don't want to give up smoking. Maybe they're just unemployed or something. So a nudge is uh, a policy which is just very mild and it just aims to help people become better off if they want so it's it's a case of them doing what they desire and helping them to do what they desire as opposed to forcing them into a course of action like if they don't have enough money to buy cigarettes yes. and then they they reduce their smoking but really if they had the choice they would still smoke correct so professor Cass sunstein who was one of the co-authors of the original nudge book and who's actually one of our keynote speakers in the summit has this new term to do, describe uh, this kind of subtle tweaks to get people to do things that they would probably not want to do. And the term is sludge. So, you know, marketing companies sometimes do these things. There's lots of examples where I present things to you in a way we can still do what you, you know, the nice thing for you, the cheaper thing or whatever, but the companies are taking advantage of human psychology to actually get them to do something that the company would like them to do. The center CBID, uh, NYUAD, is, is obviously formalizing a lot of what we're talking about and creating um, a research base and also an alternative to consultants and other maybe companies that policymakers can consult or come to or, or, or engage with or learn from to form uh, policy. But is, is the aim to help policymakers create more effective policy, more targeted policy, or just, I mean, maybe it's too broad, but to say better policy in general. Yeah, I, I would say better, um, smart, and basically making people better off. And the way we're doing this, maybe I can tell you a little bit of why we're doing this to begin with. I mean, uh, CIBID uh, and NYU, as part of NYU Abu Dhabi, is part of the, you know, the, the public sector ecosystem here. So it seemed right in a society which is so dynamic as Abu Dhabi and the UAE to reach out and see if there was an appetite for doing policy in a completely different way. What does that mean exactly? Two years ago, we went through COVID, right? And it's a good example to, to keep in mind, or a good analogy, if you want. COVID was a new threat. We didn't know what it was doing, how it was doing it. And scientists around the world got together to figure out how this virus operates. What does it impact? Who is most likely to be affected? Um, and after they came up with all the observations they could muster, given the time constraints they had, what they tried to do was to come up with 
treatments for this, a bunch of vaccines. And of course, they, you know, the next reaction was not to go start vaccinating people, but was to actually test the different vaccines in randomized trials like you do. And, you know, in principle, all these things could work. As it turns out, some vaccines were more effective than others. So after they pass the first trial, then we go to the second, and then eventually we roll it out to the population. It's that thing, that scientific approach I wanted to bring to policy. And if there is a social problem, especially if it's an important social problem, so that it warrants being studied carefully, you don't just want to randomly try different policies, especially because that undermines the credibility of the government. So what you want to do in an ideal world, you want to know the precise causes of the social problem. And you want to know what different, you know, vaccines do you have, if you want, to address the deeper causes of the problem. And that's exactly what we're trying to do uh, at CIBIT. So it's, it's not just looking for, I guess, the surface policy to uh, make something happen, but trying to go deeper to understand why something happens and then targeting the solutions. And to do that, you have to understand how humans behave, essentially. Precisely. And the other thing to, to note with this is, you know, take, a, take as an example our smartphones. They look so simple, right? But they're so complex to, to make them simple. When you design them, it's such a complex process. And it's a little bit like that with what we do. Our, we're successful when our suggested policy is very simple. And people sometimes look at me and they say, well, is this what you created, this booklet? And I say, yeah, but every sentence in that booklet is going to talk to the target audience in a very specific way. And I know this because we've done the analysis. So that's, that's exactly what we're trying to do. And how do you do that analysis? Is it experiments? Is it research? I mean, in practice, how do you, how do you test your... Um, your theories? It's, it's a variety. We, we use all the tools we can muster given the time constraints that, you know, the, the people who want the, our help uh, impose upon us. Um, you know, one thing which is really interesting to note is in the, the UA is a really unique ecosystem. You know, there's a large number of expats from all over the world. And we interact in interesting ways. So when you come uh, from abroad and you have this kind of or an idea from abroad, you have this policy transplant, the, the, you know, the UAE body is likely to reject it, metaphorically speaking. So what we do typically is we start some kind of focus groups. We talk with a population of interest. Often it could be nationals, UAE nationals. Sometimes it could be someone else. Then once we formalize uh, what the likely causes of the problem are, we basically start you know, designing large surveys but which are very specific. So you should think about this like when you go to the doctor and it says, you know, oh, you have that symptom? Go and do a blood test, go and do that test and the other test. So th that part, the diagnostic part, will come back and will say to us, okay, that problem is so important, that problem is so important, so on and so on. And then we sit down and say, okay, what can we do? And then we design some intervention to address the exact problems. The intervention may end up being something extraordinarily simple, like a booklet, which we did recently, or it could be a workshop. And people may say, oh my God, you know, this guy spent so many months and, you know, so much money to do that. But yes, but the, you know, vaccines are all look the same, but what's inside is what's important. So 
by putting the right ingredient, we maximize impact. And then we test the different possible uh, treatments we can have in controlled experiments. And once we're ready, we basically uh, give this back and to the interested parties to roll it out big time. So, I, I mean, from everything you're saying, it sounds to me like, I mean, ostensibly you're a professor of economics, but it mm -hmm. sounds like at the center, you're obviously looking at economics, you're looking at mathematics, you're looking at science, a bit of marketing, a bit of PR, <laughs> a bit of education. Yeah. All those things kind of feed, feed into to what you're doing. Uh, well, you know, the, some of these things are unintended consequences of trying to help, right? Um, such like PR, for example, you mentioned. So economics, some people refer to as the imperialistic science because it, it brings tools from maths, from statistics, from psychology, and of course, economic methodology too. And it combines them in a, in a new blend, which is what we need to make economics a science. Now, what, if I could, I could tell you quickly, what does that mean? Why do we do the things we do? Well, I don't know if you know this. Uh, science comes from the Latin word scientia, okay, which means knowledge. Not from the Greek. No, no for, not for a change. <laughs> so how do we obtain knowledge? So the, the commonly accepted paradigm for science is that you need to have testable hypotheses and a, a basic ways to test them. So in a, the math allows us often to be very precise in our assumptions. Um, and uh, the, uh, the experiments allow us to test carefully the hypothesis. And this is extremely important when we're talking about policy interventions because you often get one shot at, at doing things right. Let's imagine you're trying to fix a, a social problem that depends on other people's attitudes. Once you fail, people A, understand there is a big problem, and uh, B, they understand that it's unlikely to be fixed. So you make it worse. Almost. Exactly, exactly. So you have to be really careful. And I, I find it that over the last 10 years has been particularly, um, you know, I think they invented a new word for it, perma-crisis is like word of the year. Um, and it's because ever since, as you mentioned, the Great Recession earlier, we've rolled through, you know, sovereign debt crises. We've had Brexit. We've had COVID. Um, we've had, you know, political uh, upheaval all over the place. And so a lot of the time, economists have been, the finger's been pointed at them. You got it wrong. You, you know, you, you don't know what's going to happen. You, you keep saying you do. But it feels like from how this center is created that actually economics is advancing quite quickly to, to kind of um, match how, how fast society or, or, or countries are changing. Yeah, I mean, there is a bit of truth in everything you said. I could also twist it to serve my own purposes and say that if only sometimes government would give more time to the scientists before they rush away with things. I mean, obviously, you know, you're, you're in power, you want to fix the problem quickly, people are putting pressure on you perhaps, uh, but you, just with COVID, sometimes we cannot will the problem away. Uh, having said that, the, where the, the, you know, the Great Recession did help to trigger a change in how we think about economics. So th there is a lot of progress on, on the economist front. And, you know, maybe, you know, we're trying to also make people understand that we can be much more helpful 
So they give us a little bit of time. So you've got an event coming up uh, later this month. Um, it seems if the center is, is gathering people together to uh, bring what you're doing to a wider audience, is that fair? Yeah, we'll tr what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a dialogue in the broader community by bringing together, on the one hand, some of the leading behavioral social scientists who, uh, like us in CIBIT, they, they have the ambition to use scientific methods to improve policy, improve people's lives. And on the other hand, some um, leading stakeholders in the local government ecosystem. So on the one hand, we have, I mentioned previously, Professor Cass Sunstein, co-author of Nudge. We have Professor Axel Ockenfels, um, who has a track record of um, basically advising some very big companies that you all use, but also the German government. Uh, Professor Christina Bicchieri, who has worked with UNICEF in Africa to, uh, to bring forth some really radical social changes. And on the other hand, we have His Excellency, the Minister of Economy, uh, uh, His Excellency uh, Abdullah bin Tuk Almari. Uh, we also have Her Excellency Dr. Leila Alhias, uh, the Executive Director at the Department of Community Development. And the point is to put them all on stage and listen to each other. On the one hand, we, uh, we want uh, the experts, uh, our guests, to basically say some of the things they've done around the world to help governments. On the, and on the other hand, we want uh, the policymakers to say to those people in the audience, what are some of the issues we are facing here as a community? So that we engage in a discussion about how we can... Uh, best come together and maybe strike some uh, partnerships to see what com can come out of this. Professor Nikos Nikiforakis, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for today. Thank you to our production team and you all for being with us. Join us again next time.